Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, with the current five-year GP contract in England due to end in less than 18 months' time, we're discussing what the BMA, GPs and NHS England might want from a new contract deal, and also looking at some of the challenges for GP contracts in the rest of the UK. Aside from the contract, we'll be taking a look at what else has been up for debate at this week's England LMC's conference. And we're talking about the latest general practice appointment data for England, which for the first time has published details of practice level appointments. Finally, we've got some good news about fruit and veg in London. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, we're recording this on Wednesday, the day before England's LMC's conference. That event will be followed by a special one-day conference on Friday, which will see local medical committees set out a vision for what they want the BMA to push for in upcoming contract negotiations. We'll come on to the Thursday conference shortly, but firstly, let's take a look at the GP contract and discuss some of the things LMC's representatives will be talking about on Friday. So first, a bit of background. The current five-year GP contract began in 2019 and brought with it the introduction of primary care networks, the additional roles reimbursement scheme and a host of other changes in how practices operate. This deal comes to an end in March 2024. We already know some of the things that the BMA will be pushing for in negotiations, which will take place over the next 12 months or so. These are all things that LMCs have voted in favour of in previous conferences and so have become BMA policy, but they'll be talking about them in more detail on Friday. So some of these points, LMCs voted to move away from the current block contract to an item of service contract. Such a move, if it was accepted by NHS England in negotiations, would see practices paid for the work they actually do rather than just being given a flat fee for each patient. The introduction of some sort of cap on workload is also BMA policy, as is a move away from targets, so the quaff towards incentivising continuity of care. The BMA also wants to see the introduction of limited liability partnerships to reduce the problems around last man standing partners. And it seems very likely that the BMA will also be pushing for a review of the funding formula. So this is the Carr-Hill formula, which works out exactly how much practices get paid based on the demographics of their patients. The BMA, and in fact many others, want to see this overhauled so it better reflects deprivation. It's widely accepted that the current formula doesn't do that. And the BMA will also be asking for increases in funding each year of the new contract in line with inflation, So we don't end up again with the situation we had this year, where GPs were tied into a five-year deal under which practice only got a 3% uplift in funding, which is well below inflation and also below the 4.5% pay increase some other groups of doctors received. Finally, it's also now BMA policy to pull practices out of primary care networks and to push for all PCN funding to be moved into the core contract. But Nick, what else are LMC representatives going to be talking about around PCNs and other issues that could feed into the contract negotiations? Some of the other things that could come into play in shaping the vision for the new GP contract to follow the current multi-year deal uh, might sound a bit more extreme, but there are also things that are current policy for the BMA GP committee. One part of the discussion at the special conference will look at non-NHS options for general practice. LMCs have already voted that practices ought to be able to provide private services alongside NHS services when this relates to work not commissioned as part of NHS general practice and for research into how an updated GMS contract could provide a framework for practice to offer NHS and non-NHS services side by side. 
And another point that LMCs have agreed is that survival of general practice should take precedence over survival of the NHS. And I think all that shows effectively that nothing is off the table when it comes to potential ways forward the profession might be willing to consider. It also reflects the depths of the crisis the profession's facing, that these are the terms of the debate. I also spoke last month to the BMA GP Committee Deputy Chair, Dr. Kieran Sharrock, about his thoughts on what could follow the five-year contract. And his view was that ultimately GP practices will have no choice but to close altogether or to pare back services significantly unless the government's prepared to deliver more funding. The way he puts it is that general practice is currently expected to deliver prevention, undifferentiated care and chronic disease management, but that it isn't really funded properly for any of that. So part of the picture here is around the need for practices to drop unfunded work. And as we've reported in the past, general practice delivers services worth tens of millions of pounds that it simply isn't paid for. And that's a legacy that comes in part from what Dr. Sharrock calls the patchwork quilt of services that are commissioned locally across the country, often on a a short-term basis. But general practice is also underfunded for work that is covered in the contract. So Dr. Sharrock says practices are paid for about three or four consultations per patient per year, but they're delivering more like eight. Unsurprisingly, the need for more investment is going to be a central part of uh, contract talks to shape the post-2024 GP world. But there's also a sense that there needs to be more clarity about what is and is not covered by contracts, and then perhaps a need for freedom to deliver services outside the NHS funding envelope on a private basis. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, obviously, that all this comes against a backdrop of quite difficult relations between the BMA and NHS England as well. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but NHS England, of course, imposed the changes to the contract this year without agreement from the BMA. And there were very real concerns from the profession about whether GPs and their teams could deliver on many of the requirements around primary care networks in particular. I suppose it's also worth considering what NHS England might be hoping to get out of these contract negotiations as well. And I mean, we do have a a, a few indications on that. I watched the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee's hearings on the future of general practice. And in one of those sessions, NHS England's Director of Primary and Community Care, Dr Amanda Doyle, was on. And this was back in July. And she said that NHS England will be looking at evolution rather than revolution. That's a quote there in the next GP contract, which suggests it could be quite resistant to some of these more radical solutions the BMA is likely to be pushing for. She also talked about the fact that the NHS now has greater access to data analytics. So she suggested the contract could shift to have a greater focus on patient outcomes in the future than it does at the minute. But it's not really clear exactly what that would mean. And Dr. Dolios also said that it was likely that some aspects of the network contract directed enhanced service, so this is the contract under which primary care networks operate, that some aspects of that would be commissioned locally by integrated care systems in the future. So that's a few indications there. Nick, you also saw her speak at a conference a couple of months ago, and she also gave some clues about NHS England's position on the contract there. What did she have to say? Yeah, so Dr. Doyle mentioned that she felt the NHS needed to move to a less target-driven approach to how it contracts with primary care. There's obviously been talk for a long time about scrapping QOF, and that's something that the RCGP has been in favour of. But I think this could also mitigate against something we talked about earlier, the idea of an item of service contract for, for GPs. Dr Doyle asked whether it was possible to use funding effectively if we chop it up into little bits with £1.50 for this and 25p for that, and basically her view was a clear no. 
that suggests, I think, in line with what you've just said, that there, there could be substantial opposition to any move to item of service from NHS England and, and you know, any, any sort of major change like that. And of course, it's also worth remembering here that Dr. Doyle is herself a GP. So there are probably plenty of other GPs out there who share a similar viewpoint. In terms of primary care networks, that is a big point that could become quite contentious, I think, in these contract negotiations. As I mentioned earlier, it is BMA policy now for primary care networks, basically the funding from primary care networks to move into core funding. But NHS England has just recently been through this huge reorganisation where we've seen CCGs move to integrated care systems. Primary care networks are really key to how NHS England sees integration across local areas working. So personally, I can't see that they would be very keen on scrapping them and starting all over again. I think one of LMC's main objections to PCNs is not necessarily the idea of working collaboratively with neighbours. They're not necessarily against that idea. It's more around the concerns that any increase in funding for general practice has been up until now, probably will be in future funneled through networks rather than going into core funding. And also the huge list of requirements that NHS England is expecting PCNs to deliver on. The network contract des is very prescriptive about what networks have to do, which I think a lot of practices and GPs find very difficult. We've talked on the podcast before about the various debates and emotions where the BMA and LMC representatives have voted for practices to pull out of PCNs. Nick, how important do we think scrapping PCNs is for GPs? And what are the potential consequences if the BMA remains at loggerheads with NHS England on PCNs? Perceptions of PCNs among GPs vary significantly across the country. And it's often the case that where there was a history of collaboration between practices in a local area, that's translated into PCNs that work well as a, as a unit. A majority of GPs say that PCNs have added to practice workload rather than reducing it. And in the current environment in which demand is skyrocketing and the GP workforce is continuing to decline, the idea of scrapping PCNs is appealing to a lot of people on, on that basis. And the imposed contract this year brought a lot of PCN targets that had been suspended during the COVID pandemic back into play. So that's added to pressure on practices. And obviously last year, there was an indicative BMA ballot that found more than half of GP practices would be willing to pull out of PCNs as part of a collective action across the profession. That would be a really big step for them to take. But and one of the things they are going to be talking about on Friday is what options could be on the table if they can't get PCN funding moved into core funding. What do they do with that money? And I think that the BMA will be looking for LMC representatives to help them come up with a plan for what to do if NHS England basically says, no, we're not moving that £1 billion plus pounds into core funding. But one of the other things they're also talking about on Friday, LMCs will also be talking about, is what would happen if the contract can't be agreed? And that section's called options of last resort. So what's that all about, Nick, and what's on the table there? Yeah, so uh, LMCs are going to be talking about the possibility of industrial action. And that option of withdrawal from PCNs is obviously a possible form of action if the BMA decides to go down that road. But there's a range of other forms of action that practices could take. And some of these are, are going to be discussed at the special conference as well. The kinds of action practices might consider include limiting workload by operating strictly within BMA safe working guidance. So that could mean moving to 15 minute appointments, creating waiting lists for non-urgent appointments, reducing the range of services that they offer as a practice. 
And GPs could also take a sort of tougher line on refusing work dumped on primary care from hospitals. They could also do things like refuse to use advice and guidance systems or refuse to provide private letters and statements. They could also do things like halt travel vaccination. So there's a range of other options that are going to be uh, discussed as those potential options of last resort. This is what they're talking about, what happens if they can't reach a contract agreement or the NHS England again tries to impose a contract on the profession that's not agreed by the BMA. Yeah, so that's right. This is about deciding options of last resort in the event that negotiations over a new contract for the the sort of post five-year deal era come to nothing. And if, for example, the government tries to impose a contract again at the end of that period. So we've been talking here about England because obviously uh, all this is going on this week, but it's not only, England's not the only UK country that's been facing problems with the GP contract, is it? No, I mean, as you mentioned, the problems are wider than just England. In in Northern Ireland, GPs have called for a big rethink on the GP contract uh, because they've lost about a tenth of practices in less than a decade. And they're saying that a significant number more look to be on the brink of collapse. And in Scotland as well, GPs have been asking for honesty from the government about what general practice can reasonably be expected to provide within the constraints of its current workforce and funding. The BMA has done some research recently which shows that around a third of practices are operating with GP vacancies at the moment. Thanks, Nick. But before we move on, just to let you know, we'll know we've put uh, some links to articles on GP Online that explain some of the background to the issues we've been talking about here in the description for this episode of the podcast. There's an especially good piece by Nick, which he wrote at the end of last year, looking at the pros and cons of moving to an item of service-based contract, which I think is really interesting and sums up some of the potential challenges with that. Next up, obviously Thursday's England LMC's conference will have happened by the time you're listening to this. You'll be able to find all the key news from that event on our website at gponline.com. But I thought it was worth highlighting some of the issues LMC representatives are talking about because these are obviously a real indication about what's bothering the profession at the moment, aside from the contract, which we've already talked about. So some of the debates that stand out are on safety for patients and GPs given the current crisis in general practice, integrated care systems, GP workforce and primary and secondary care interface. Nick, what are the workforce motions and what does that tell us about what's going on at the minute? Yeah, so, so one interesting motion that LMCs were due to debate at the conference this week calls for doctors who are not on the NHS England medical performers list to be allowed to deliver services in general practice under GP supervision. And there seems to be a real consensus developing around the idea of doctors who are not GPs being used to bolster the workforce in general practice. We know that general practice has lost 1,800 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs since 2015. So that's the real workforce crisis that the profession is facing. And the GMC, the RCGP and NHS England have recently spoken in favour of tapping into a huge pool of doctors who can currently only work in hospitals to support general practice. So this is specialty and associate specialist or, or SAS doctors. These doctors are the fastest growing group in the NHS workforce and the creation of a, an SAS grade in primary care could potentially allow GPs to bring some of those doctors in to support clinical work in practices and to increase capacity. So Amanda Doyle, the, the NHS England Primary and Community Care Director we mentioned earlier in the podcast, said last week that she and the NHS Medical Director had written to the GMC calling for changes to allow both this change around SAS doctors and others as well as that, so uh, such as geriatricians, to be employed or employable in practices. 
she argued that a huge proportion of work in general practice is linked to increasing complexity around the aging population. She gave a figure, I think the um, numbers of, uh, of patients aged over 65 have increased by a quarter in a decade or more. The GP workforce in the meantime has gone in the opposite direction. So doctors such as geriatricians, potentially, if they could be brought into primary care to support general practice capacity, could take a really big load off of GPs. The point is here that if LMCs were to back this as well and make it BMA policy, that's a really broad consensus in favour of this move, which makes the chances of it happening surely pretty high. Maybe the cavalry is coming for general practice after all. The other topic for debate around the workforce concerns safety. So there's a warning that the chronic shortage of GPs and underfunding has, has made general practice unsafe for both patients and doctors. So, you know, basically, while it's positive, there seems to be this this kind of plan shaping up that could bolster the general practice workforce or the, the clinical workforce in primary care in any case. This is a reminder that the plan is one that's shaped by that pretty grim status quo. I think that some of the other things that could be quite interesting is there's a couple of debates on integrated care systems. There's one specifically on the fuller stock take, which talks about the implementation of some of the ideas in that report and says they're basically failing already, which doesn't really bode well for the integration agenda. Uh, and then there's another more general one on how integrated care systems are interacting with practices. And that calls for GP funding to be ring-fenced within the ICS, better representation of GPs in the system and better engagement with practices, and also support from ICSs to help practices manage workload and remain viable. So I think those kind of show some of the concerns that GPs have around the introduction of integrated care systems, and also some of the things that they want help with. But what's interesting about this as well is that the conference agenda includes some statements and comments about ICSs from around 48 LMCs, as I guess kind of background to the debate these statements point to a lot of concerns that local medical committees have around the introduction of integrated care systems. Many of them are focused on representation, as I've mentioned, and there's real worries that LMCs have kind of been sidelined in discussions. Uh, the other big concern really seems to around the level of funding coming into primary care as opposed to other providers in the system. And a feeling I, I, from several of those statements that general practice is really undervalued. One of them I thought was quite interesting was from Liverpool LMC and that local medical committee says that it's concerned that integrated care boards, which are basically the organisations that run the system, are only interested in hospitals and hospital care and that the focus seems to be on funding general practice to ensure hospitals don't collapse rather than funding general practice based on what it actually has to offer. So I thought that was quite an interesting perspective. And then the other thing that's worth mentioning, I think, is that the primary and secondary care interface, there's a motion on that. This is obviously about workload inappropriately transferred to practices. This has almost become a customary motion. It's almost at every LMC's conference, there's a motion about problems with workload dump and the primary and secondary care interface. And I think the fact it comes around again and again, year after year, shows that no one seems to be able to get a handle on this problem. Then they can't seem to solve it. This is perhaps something that ICSs really could get to grips with and do something about. And if they want to make a difference to practice workloads and actually improve things for patients, they could really start looking at this problem. And interestingly, the motion this year is talking about audits around what's going on, solutions to the problems, rather than just highlighting the problems it causes for GPs. So maybe ICS leaders could look at some of those options that GPs will be talking about this week and take some of them on board. 
I watched a, a webinar the other day and uh, Amanda Doyle, that GP we were talking about earlier, mentioned again, as, as has been done by various NHS and GP leaders in the past, the, the hospital contract has a bunch of clauses in it that talk about hospitals not being able to dump workload and designed to reduce that workload dumping onto general practice. So the fact that it's still going on despite that, and presumably hospitals feel, I don't know, that they can override or ignore a lot of those clauses, that's that's an alarming thing. This is something that we've been talking about for possibly, you know, five years, 10 years, who knows, maybe more. The problem is also now kind of been compounded. There's all of that going on. But now we've also got these extra problems now with referrals being refused and real kind of standoffs between whether GPs can get people referred into hospitals. And I think that is also becoming a real problem on that primary care interface and that's something that integrated care systems are going to have to tackle and deal with. In other news, this week saw the first publication of NHS Digital's general practice appointment data which now details information at a practice level. Nick is our resident expert on data that comes out of NHS Digital and he looks at this set of data every month and often writes stories about what it tells us very generally about the level of workload in general practice across England and how this has changed over time. So, Nick, could you explain firstly exactly what information NHS Digital publishes in this particular data set every month? Yeah, so NHS Digital has been publishing figures on GP appointments for a few years now. It collects data from practice IT systems and aggregates that to show the total number of appointments delivered in general practice in England each month, with breakdowns showing how many were delivered face-to-face by telephone, as home visits and so on, as well as looking at how many appointments were delivered by different types of healthcare professional working primary care, whether it's GPs, nurses or others. And there's also information on things like the time between booking and the appointment taking place, duration of appointments, the context in which the appointment took place, such as whether it was a routine appointment or an urgent one or a walk-in and that kind of thing. Right. So up until now, NHS Digital has only published this information at a national level and CCG or now ICS level. But it's now, as of this week, it's going to be publishing it for every single practice in England. I mean, we've spoken about this data on the podcast before. What are some of the potential concerns around publishing it at a practice level? There have always been regional breakdowns, but this is the first time the figures were made available at practice level. And there are some real concerns about the accuracy of the data that will be made available and around how it could be used. So the Department of Health under Liz Truss promised to publish this practice level information to help patients choose which practice was right for them. So it's effectively been endorsed by the government as a tool for patients to check how their practice compares with others and therefore potentially to consider moving between practices on the basis of that information. But GPs are really worried that trying to compare practices with this data risks comparing apples with pears because basically different practices work in different ways. Practices with older populations might offer a larger proportion of appointments face-to-face because that fits their population's requirements and expectations, while the reverse could be true for a practice serving a younger population. Practice could deliver a lower proportion of its total patient contacts face-to-face because it's adopted a triage system that means more initial contacts with patients are digital or by telephone. And some GP practices following BMA advice on safe working have adopted 15-minute appointments as standard. So 
That could mean they appear to be delivering fewer appointments per patient, even though it might be the case that they resolve more issues per appointment because the appointments are are longer. Um, And it's possible, too, that the practices could appear at first glance to have a, a low proportion of appointments delivered face to face when in fact they're delivering large numbers of in-person appointments. So, I mean, a practice that delivers more appointments in person per patient than others, but also delivers a large number of telephone appointments, could be ranked as poor performing because its proportion of in-person appointments seems low, just by dint of the fact that it's doing a lot of extra work on phone appointments too. I mean, there's also a risk that practice level data can fluctuate significantly month to month in a way that perhaps national or regional figures don't. And this can happen because of factors outside of practice control, such as a rise in staff absences or simple differences in how practices record data, which can cause some problems. Basically, good practice can be reflected poorly in crude statistics like this. Media organisations, politicians and others that have used face-to-face appointments as a stick to beat GPs with in recent times really don't have a great track record of taking factors like that into account. I mean, as we've said before on this podcast, that the practices have faced a rising tide of abuse and intense criticism over access. And I think many will rightly fear this latest addition to the publicly available data on practices could heap more pressure on them at a time of crisis. No, it's a really good point, isn't it? I mean, even the national data, journalists are very quick to jump on the proportion of face-to-face appointments and actually ignore the fact that GPs have delivered record numbers of appointments overall in recent months. Anyway, by the time you listen to this, we'll have written about this first set of data. So do have a look on our website, gponline.com for that. Finally this week, we've just got time for our regular good news slot. We're always keen to highlight positive news and the good work that's going on in general practice on both the podcast on gponline.com. If you're up to anything in your practice or working life that you think deserves attention, or you'd like to give a shout out to an individual practice or other organisation or group that you think's making a real difference to patient care or your local community, then do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. We'll put that address in the show notes as well. Anyway, this week, I just wanted to highlight a story we wrote about earlier this month relating to a new pilot which will see GPs in London prescribing fruit and veg to their patients. The scheme, which is backed by £250,000 of funding, is thought to be the first large-scale project of its kind in the UK. The 12-month pilot, which is being funded by local authorities and charitable foundation the Alexandra Rose Charity, will operate in the boroughs of Lambeth and Tower Hamlets, both of which have high levels of poverty, child poverty, income inequality and health inequality – People prescribed fruit and vegetables under the scheme will be offered vouchers worth £8 a week plus £2 a week for each household member. The vouchers can be spent at local shops and with local market traders. People who receive the vouchers will also be offered monthly healthy lifestyle group sessions to help them better understand the links between nutrition and health. Now, the scheme is going to be targeted at 122 residents across both of those boroughs who are at risk of or already have high blood pressure, diabetes or mental health conditions and people who are struggling financially. And the trial is going to look at how effective fruit and vegetable prescriptions could be in addressing diet-related ill health and food insecurity. Just note this project is being delivered in partnership with the Bromley by Bow Centre in Tower Hamlets and the Beacon Project in Lambeth. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to listening and thanks for Nick. I'm back next week, so please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 